have your Bible, we're going to go straight into it this morning. Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 1 is where we are going to be today. And um, if you're new to our church, if it's your first time with us or your second time or your third time, uh, we want to just welcome you to gospel. We believe that the church uh, should be a place that's good. Amen. Amen. So it should be fun. Amen. It should be alive. You know what I mean? It should be breathing. Um, it's uh, just something we really look forward to church every Sunday. You know, church isn't a drag for us. It's not an obligation for us. It's not like something we have to do. Like I wake up excited to go talk to God. I, I wake excited to hear what he's got to say about my life. And so whatever you've got going on in your world today, I believe God's gonna speak to it and uh, he's gonna minister something to us. Okay, Revelation chapter one, uh, we're gonna start in verse one. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know, we started this little mini series through the book of Revelation. And I'm actually gonna continue Revelation Wednesdays in December. And so if you are joining us today for the first time and you're here for the Revelation study, it's gonna continue in December on Wednesday nights. And we're gonna just work our way through the whole book. Uh, my hope is that it's simple enough to understand, but deep enough um, to know what's going on in the world. And uh, today we're gonna go a little bit further with it. Revelation chapter one, starting in verse nine. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. If you're alive, turn to somebody, say, I'm alive. Okay, here we go. Here reads the word of the Lord. It says, I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. So remember, Patmos is a prison island. John has been sent there as a prisoner. It's a penal society. It's very much like uh, Rikers Island or Alcatraz. It's where prisoners would be sent to deal with their decisions. And it's while he is in a different place that God gives him a different kind of vision. I believe it's not until you get out of your normal environment that you'll hear God say something new. Everyone's saying, I want God to do something new, but not changing anything about their environment. And so I believe when John was out of his normal environment, that's when God spoke clearly says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see and put it in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Watch this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven golden lampstands was one of a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet was like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Almost done here. In his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining in, like the sun shining in full strength. This is kind of a big revelation John has. He sees the glorified Jesus. He probably hasn't seen him like this in 30 to 40 years. Last time he would have saw Jesus was right before Jesus ascended into heaven after being crucified and rising again. Now at the end of his life, John is being informed about what the end of the world looks like. And it's in that heart today that we're gonna pick up. So let's pray. Father, we love you today. 
thank you for this word. Thank you for these verses. God, I pray that as we open up the uh, book today, you would open up our hearts. I pray that our religion would not be seen as just a bunch of stuff to do, but that we would see it purely as the Bible says, taking care of people, loving those in need, and loving you with all we can. So we, lo we love you. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Turn to somebody one more time and say, are you ready for some revelation? Are you ready for some revelation? Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've been married to uh, my lovely bride for coming up on eight years this January. Nine years? Eight years? Man, I'm losing track of time. Nine years this January. And um, I'm telling you, when, uh, when we first got together, uh, I was well aware of how big her family was. Okay, I, I, I come from, um, uh, I'm white, okay, let's just say it like that, and uh, she's not, she's Mexican. And so her family was a lot bigger than what I'd been used to growing up. It was just me, my dad, my sister, you know, my mom in and out. For Randy, it was like, you know, six tios and seven tias and abuelas and abuelitas and all, you know, everybody. And there got to a point where I remember I started making my way into the family. Like I would start coming to gatherings and I would start coming to holiday things. And eventually like, you know, all the grandmas started getting a little cool with me and like they were a little bit nicer. And the moment finally came, it was around Christmas time and I got invited to go make tamales with my family. This is like initiation into a family. Like my Nana was there. She had the ruler out. You can only get the masa a certain limit. And she was measuring stuff and keeping track of things. And I remember showing up at the house for making, uh, uh, we were making tamales and I saw Nana outside and I go, Nana, I don't really know how to make tamales. I don't really know what we're doing. And she says, mijo, it's fine if you don't know the details, as long as you know, we're making tamales. And I'm like, okay, what's in a tamale? And she would say, don't get caught up in knowing all the details, mijo. Welcome to the family. Get an apron on. Let's make some tamales. And I'm like, what? And what she was saying is, don't get so caught up in all the little details about something that you don't just keep going with it. That you don't just keep moving. I think there's a lot of times in our life, we think we need to know the fullness of something before we actually take a step. And we say, no, I'm not going to take a step until I can be reassured all these details are true. And I just think sometimes we're, we make it compli more complicated than it needs to be. Sometimes God doesn't want to give you all the details. He wants to know, are you willing to take the first step? I think about the book of Revelation and how deep of a book this is. And uh, if you know kind of the story here, we had a whole series planned this month. You know, we had a great thing going for October. And we really felt like the Holy Spirit challenged us as a leadership team to get into the book of Revelation. Now, not a lot of people read the book of Revelation because it's scary and it's confusing and there's a lot going on. I mean, some of the greatest theologians of all time have struggled with this book. Uh, Martin Luther, if you know Martin Luther, he was the one that nailed the thesis on the Catholic Church. Okay, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he saw the Catholic Church and he said, how come people are paying money to get out of purgatory? How come people are going to the priest instead of just going to Jesus themselves? And he listed 95 things that was wrong with the Catholic Church. And he says, this isn't how church is supposed to be. And he nailed it on the front door of this church in Germany. And it started the Reformation, where Christians stopped believing there was a middleman between them and Jesus. And started what we are practicing today, that modern Christian movement. Martin Luther was a great theologian. He didn't even do a commentary on the book of Revelation. They asked him once about the book of Revelation. He says, I can't understand the grace that's in it. He was such a grace guy that he looked at this and said, what's good about this? 
And if you're like me, you'll come to the Bible and say, maybe I don't need to get in there because there's too much going on. I'd like to challenge you. It's the very opposite. Because there's so much going on, you should want to get in there. You should want to find out what does God say to you. The great Charles Spurgeon was once asked about the book of Revelation. A man says to him, can you explain the seven trumpets of Revelation? And he said, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. In other words, I might not know all the details of Jesus's return, but I do know Jesus is returning. I might not know when or how or why or which country is which country and who's the Antichrist and is it Russia, is it China, what's real? I don't know all those details, but I do know something's happening in this book. And the church is being commissioned to prepare itself for the coming of Jesus. I said this last week, but I met my wife the night before our wedding. We'd known each other before, but I met up with her the night before, and, and we had saw each other the night before, and, and she says, it's almost midnight. I don't want to see you on our wedding day. And so I saw her at 11.59. She was in sweatpants. I was in sweatpants. The next time we saw each other, I was in a suit. She was in her wedding dress. It is the same with the church. When you met Jesus, you might have been busted and disgusted. You might have been tore up from the floor up. When you met Jesus, you might have came in with some marks still in your arm. You might have came in with some addiction or some pain. But when he comes back, he's not coming for sweatpants, baby. He's coming for a church that is ready. Feel like preaching this morning. Because we're too caught up in the details. Do you want to be a part of this church? Well, what's your stance on this theology? It's like, I can give you the stances, but isn't it better when we talk about what we're for? Isn't it better when we say, don't you feel a a need for family? You know, I don't know if I can really trust, you know, something that's going on. Long term, the only thing that's going to affect is you. Okay? We have imperfect leaders all around our world. And because we don't engage like we might need to, we can't, you know, put the blame on them. I want to be people that are ready. The Apostle John is an important figure. Let me give you a few things about him just from Revelation 1. First, we know that John is our brother. He says it in verse 9, I, John, your brother. Now, this is the John that walked with Jesus. This is the John that at the Last Supper, when Jesus was talking about leaving, John, the Bible says, leaned his head up against the bosom of Jesus just to like hug him and console him. John is probably the youngest of the 12 disciples when he's walking around with Jesus. We believe he's anywhere from 12 to 15 years old when he gets called to be a disciple. 12 to 15 years old, called to be a disciple. At this point in his life, though, he's not 12 or 15. We believe he's probably 50, maybe even older, 60 years old. He's really been through it. He's went through persecution. Out of the 12 disciples, he is the only one that dies from natural causes. All the other disciples are martyred. They are killed for their faith. You can't read it in the Bible. You've got to go into church history to find out how did Peter get crucified and how did Thomas die. John is the only one. that he, They couldn't kill him. Like eventually they got so tired of him, they just put him on an island. You know, they, they actually tried to boil him in hot oil. The Bible says, not the Bible says, church history says that, that they, uh, the emperor at the time put this big pot of hot oil and they said, he won't shut up about Jesus. And they just put him in the hot oil hoping it would kill him, but he survived almost as if the oil on the inside was stronger. They eventually, they tried piercing him in his side. One of the church historians says that John was just pierced one time. He just kept saying, Jesus, Jesus, he's preaching Jesus. And the emperor just like, just stuck him. And he still survived. 
Eventually, they got so tired of him, they just removed him from his normal environment, and they put him on the outside. Because when people can't get you to stop talking about Jesus, they'll just stop talking to you. When you start saying, I feel like God has changed my life. I don't want to do this anymore. When you go to your girlfriend and you're like, I don't think we should sleep together anymore. God changed my life. When you go to your friends you used to do drugs with, I can't do this anymore. God's changed my life. If you don't shut up about Jesus, they'll just shut up about you. And they'll say, fine, get him out of here then. So what's the point? John's our brother. He knows us. He knows what we've been like. Okay, if you grew up Catholic, you might have seen John as a saint. And I appreciate the sainthood. I understand it. I get it traditionally, whatever. But make no mistake, John didn't see himself as above you and I. He says right here, I'm your brother, y'all. Come on. You're no different than me. You need Jesus too. Secondly, he says, I'm your brother and I'm your partner in the tribulation. Now, this isn't talking about the tribulation, which I'll get into next year. Uh, This is just talking about general stress, anguish of life. In this world, you will have tribulation is what Jesus said. And John wants us to know, I'm with you guys in it. Uh, He said he was exiled to a penal island called Patmos, about 13 square miles, 10 miles long, three miles wide, I believe. And a very small place would have been stuck there with other prisoners too. So maybe he didn't just get sent there to get a revelation. Maybe he got sent there to encourage those prisoners too. Hello, maybe where you end up is where you're supposed to be because God will use you right where you're at. Fourth, the reason why he's on this island is just because of the word of God. On account of the word of God, he says he's been arrested. So that can mean a number of different things, but we know he's bold. And then lastly, he has a vision, and the vision says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Everyone say Lord's day. Lord's day. This is a reference to uh, the, the day that many Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so typically, historically, the church would gather on Saturdays, Jewish community, they were in synagogue, they practiced Sabbath, that was when they would go. The church gathered throughout the whole week, but eventually some Christians said, Jesus rose on Saturday, on Sunday, we should start meeting on Sunday. And they started calling Sundays the Lord's Day. Now, it's one of those details, okay? Whenever you go to church, just go to church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, the focus is Jesus, not the details, okay? The distractions come from the details. Distractions from, well, what do I wear? What should I dress like when I go there? And it's like, okay, those are details. You're getting distracted. You need to come to church. Yep. Well, what kind of people are there? Anyone from my past there? Anyone from my last church there? Do they know what I did there? And those are details. And listen, they're valid. Yep. But at the end of the day, we don't focus too much on the details. We miss the main thing. It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Let's pick it up again. Verse 10, Revelation 1. You still with me? Okay, good. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I'm not just having a dream. This is an out-of-body, transcendental vision he's having. This isn't like he had some pizza in the middle of the night, he had a crazy dream. You know what I mean? This is like the Spirit of God picked him up and took him into another dimension. It's, it's beyond our comprehension. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Everyone say Seven. Seven, as we talked about last week, is the number of completion. It is the completeness of God when we study numerology. And these seven churches, I can't get into them today. I'll, December, Dece- t- turn to somebody say, December, December. We'll get to it in December, okay? But each one of these churches represents a type of church in history. 
And so there are churches that care about the appearance more than the heart. There are churches that don't want to bother anybody and, you know, step on anyone's toes. And so they're timid about truth. There's a church that's like all they struggle with is sexual immorality. And all they struggle with is like being tempted by the flesh. Each one of these churches is important to God's plan because it reveals our need for a savior. Okay, the church has always been God's plan. The church is never like a thing that God said, well, I'll, I'll do the church until people don't trust the church and then I'll do something else. I'll do house churches, you know? It's like, no, no, my friends, the church has always been his plan. And there's this movement today though that you can be a Christian without being a part of a church. And we say things like, well, I'm not walking away from church. I'm just, I'm, I'm not walking away from Jesus or anything. I'm not leaving Jesus. I'm just walking away from the church. And I just wanna tell you today, walking away from the church is like walking away from Jesus. Hello, you, you, you can be a Christian, sure, and not go to church, just like I can be a husband and never go home to my wife. It's, it's not a question of whether you're a Christian or not. I just think we have to be very clear that the church has been God's plan. And it's not a question of your integrity, your faith. It's just this is something he built and established for us to enjoy. And not just come to, but the church is something we're called to be. So how can you be something that you're never actually around? Wow. I'm not called to go to church. I'm called to be the church. But you never come to church. <laughs> Are you with me? I mean, I'm not one of those picky pastors like checking your attendance. I'm more so talking about the general heart behind I don't need to go. Listen, you can have God right where you're at. You can watch church on TV. I get it. But make no mistake, the plan has always been the church is the hope of the world. The church is the place where defeated people can come in and feel like they can fight again. The church is the place where addiction can, can be embraced for what it is, but not accepted for what it's become. Like, yeah, come in if you're broken. Yeah, come in if you've had a couple divorces. Come in if you've had an abortion. Come in if you're struggling with your sexuality. Come in if you're dealing with some things because the church is so good, you'll come in one way and you will leave different. Well, you guys are just trying to change people. Yes. Amen. Yes, I'm trying to change too. Because God is too good to keep us the same. The church is the hope of the world. The church is what God, Jesus actually said this about the church. One day he was with some disciples and he looks at him, he goes, what are people saying about me out there? It's Matthew 16. He goes, what did people say the son of man? And they go, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And eventually Jesus looks at him and goes, well, what do you say? Because if they don't understand me out there, it might be because the people in the church don't understand me in here. So what are they saying about gospel church? Oh, well, they're this, they're that, they're this, they're that. Okay, that's everyone on the outside. What are the people inside saying? Because what they're thinking outside is affected by what we think inside. So what are they saying about me? And they say, oh, we, they're confused about you, Jesus. They think you're something you're not. They think you're Elijah. They think you're Jeremiah. They, they're, they're misrepresenting you. You ever had someone that says they know Jesus, but it doesn't sound like Jesus when they talk about him? Yeah, yeah I'm a Christian. But then they say things that don't sound Christ-like. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So eventually Jesus says, who do you say I am? And the apostle Peter, he says, you are the Christ. He says, you are the Messiah. And this is Jesus' response, Matthew 16. He says, okay, you are Peter. 
And he says, upon that revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I don't build the church. Randy doesn't build the church. You don't build the church. Jesus says, I build the church. Jesus builds the church. Jesus said, you know why the church is going to grow? Not because of great marketing, not because of great strategy, not because of great, you know, all that stuff. It's going to grow because my grace is on it. And when God puts his grace on something, it grows according to his grace. Church grows not because the pastor's good. It grows because grace is good. Church grows not because people invite people. It's because the grace of God empowers them to invite people. Who am I preaching to? I could do all day on the church because there's something in our culture that says we don't need the church. The church is outdated. The church is outdated. At our church, we like to uh, answer questions that people are actually asking. And so if you've ever struggled with something about church, about leadership, about the Bible, my door's open, man. We would love to help process with you about what should the church be? What did you experience maybe in your last church? Because one bad experience is not enough to keep you away from God. One bad time, and then you're gonna give up on Jesus? No, friends. We are imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. And so here's the role of a Christian. We don't wanna just love Jesus, but we actually wanna live like Jesus. And we don't wanna just live like him, we wanna live for him. What does it mean to live for Jesus? If, if the book of Revelation's true, and Jesus is returning, that would mean that I'm gonna base my life preparing for that one moment when he comes back. Okay, I want you to think about this. Olympians and athletes, they spend their entire life training, preparing, getting ready for one race, one moment on the Olympic stage. They will spend their entire lives getting ready just for that one moment. We, on the other hand, like to prepare one moment and hope that it'll last us our whole lives. I'm here today to tell you we live for that moment when he comes back. We live, we wait in eager expectation for him to return. Because when he comes back, there's no more pain, suffering, sickness, okay? There will be, but when he's done doing what he's got to do, we will experience that hope. And so what does it mean to live for Jesus? A couple thoughts today as, as uh, we kind of wrap all this up. First, living for Jesus starts with turning to him. So profound, right? <laughs> but ultimately, you cannot live for somebody that does not have your full attention, and there is a thing in our culture that knows God is good and that we should have God around. And, you know, we should go to church and we should like do this, right? And God is there, but, but he doesn't have our full attention. And, and, and it's more like our culture tells us we should go do this versus we want to do it because we see him and know him. Revelation chapter one, verse 12, it says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And so John literally says, I had to turn to see him. Okay. A turning is something you do when you finally accept who Jesus is and you stop trying to live life on your own. You, you repent is what the Bible says. Uh, repent. You guys heard this language? Repent. 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 It always sounds so sharp. Repent. You sinner. Repent. And it's like that word repent simply means to turn. And so all that word is telling us is the way you're trying to live your life, change that direction and come to Jesus. And there are people that want the benefits of Jesus without actually turning their life towards him. 
can I show you more? Because in that verse, it says that there was seven lampstands. Someone say seven. Uh, later on in the chapter, Jesus actually tells us the seven lampstands represent those seven churches I referenced, okay? And then it says, and on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands, verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. So son of man is Jesus. It's a reference to Daniel 7, deep stuff. We'll keep it on that side for now. Okay, so in this moment, John sees seven lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands is who? Jesus. If the seven lampstands represent the churches, this is a picture God's showing us that Jesus should be the center of the church. Because when church all of a sudden has Jesus in the background, we get upset and we get stressed out about things that don't even matter. And we make church more about our preferences instead of having Jesus right in the center. Okay, that's why when we planted this church, we envisioned a Jesus-centered church. We don't preach opinions. We don't preach politics. We don't preach little individual things that apply to how I view the world. We preach Jesus. Or as Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. And so in the midst of the seven, they see Jesus. The idea of turning is something we should always be willing to do as Christians. Turn from the way we do things and look towards God. Matthew chapter three says this, we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning we should be people that move forward, but as we make mistakes, we're humble enough to uh, 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 own them. When we make mistakes, we don't run from them, but we repent. You know, I had someone on my team about two months ago, you know, they asked me to do something and I did it a certain way. And then later they came back and they were like, you know, I gotta be honest, the way you handled that, I was expecting you to do it this way. I felt a little like you didn't have my back there. And as a leader, as the pastor, I had to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that's wrong. And I remember saying this, if I don't always lead by example, I promise to always lead by repentance. Because it's one thing to have a leader that acts like they know everything. It's another thing to have a leader that tries, and when they mess up, they own it and try to get better. How different would our world be if we all just owned up to our mistakes? You know what's a powerful two words? I'm sorry. I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. You know, but too often we don't want to turn. We don't want to look. In our modern-day culture, we can't let Jesus just get into the background of things. He's got to be front and center. William Booth once said this. He says, I consider that the chief dangers that now confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. William Booth's assessment was there's going to come a day where we want all the good side, we want all the good things without the real weight of it. Okay, let me read it to you again. He says, the consider the chief dangers coming to us will be religion without the Holy Ghost. So that means we're going to do the stuff without an actual encounter with God. I came to church, I took the notes, I put them in my Bible, I still feel miserable. That's religion without the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit. So we, we, we can't have that. The second thing he says is Christianity without Christ. Christianity that loves their neighbor as themselves, but there's no call to repent of your sin and come to Jesus. Our, our country allows us to love Jesus without fearing God, 
And so as Christians, we can't just have Christianity. We need Christ in Christianity. Uh, the third one, we want forgiveness without repentance. So forgiveness without repentance is I want to be forgiven for what I've done without actually owning what I've done. I want people to treat me differently even though I myself have never accepted what I did. Okay, here's the next one. Salvation without regeneration. Meaning we want people to get saved, but they don't get changed. We want them to have the benefits of going to heaven while they can still live like hell down here. Two more. God without politics. We want politics without God, excuse me, and heaven without hell. Politics without God. Oh, don't get me started. But I, I fear that we want just enough God in our politics to get a vote, but not enough God to actually change our morality and our character. And election season's coming next year, and you know, pray for me, God willing, I'll be able to release a book. It'll be my third one. It'll be about politics and how to get through the election season without losing your mind. Because I'm not the type of leader that says how you should vote or who you should do, you know, vote for and all that kind of stuff. I have friends that are Democrats, friends that are Republicans. My whole thing is those are all the details. You're forgetting about how to love people. So vote for who you got to vote for, but remember to love your neighbor as yourself. These are all things that if we don't turn to him, we're not actually going to live for him. Okay, I got to hurry here. Secondly, living for Jesus is fueled by knowing him. So not only do I turn to him, but I continually come back to him to want to know him. I want to get intimate with him. I want to have undistracted time with him. I want to have his presence be more real than the skin I can actually feel. I want to desire him in such a way that, 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 that y'all don't know my relationship with Jesus. Like, like, yeah, people will see you and they'll know you talk to Jesus. That's great. But there's something special about that individual time with the one who made you. Can't explain it. But a lot of Christians, they have all the rules without any relationship. It's because they've never actually got to know him. Not like know him like, you know, I know Sam and Sam knows me and I know Sam and Sam's here. Hey, Sam. You guys know Sam? Everyone say, hey, Sam. You know what I mean? We know Sam. Everyone knows Sam. I know Sam. We know Sam. It's not even like that. It's not just like, oh yeah, I know Jesus when he's brought up in conversation. It's, I know Jesus that when you talk about him, it feels like you're talking about me. I know Jesus on a level that it's like when you talk about my church, you're talking about my family. It's like you were talking about my own daughter that way when you talk about a member that way. It hits me deeper because I know him. Okay, let's see what the scripture says. Revelation chapter one, verse 14. John turns, he sees this image, and this is a pretty profound moment. It says, the hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Let's go through each part of what John sees here. First, he saw the head of Jesus, his face, his eyes. His head represents his power and his authority. So when we see the head of Jesus, we think about his power. We think about his authority. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one that has the power and the authority. Okay, are you with me? His eyes were the second thing. In his eyes, we see holiness and we see his perfectness. Holiness doesn't mean that we're just free of sin. Holiness means we are in alignment with exactly what God wants us to do. Okay, when you see the eyes of Jesus in this moment, remember, it says they were like flames of fire, okay? And it's not that they were fire, but John writes it and says they were like fire. 
And the Greek word here implies that it wasn't like, you know, light a candle, how pretty. It's like a swirling, rushing fire. Like his eyes had so much holiness in John's view that when he saw them, it actually changed his very being. Jesus is holy. Okay, we all like lovey, squishy Jesus. We love, you know, Jesus that, you know, accepts me as I am and everything's great and we love him and he would never say anything bad. And I just want to remind you, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to win the war and he's going to fight and he's going to come and fight for you. And the Bible says he's coming with a sword. And, you know, I know we like to think Jesus is peaceful and he is, but there's plenty of things about the end times where he's not coming to be peaceful this time. You know, we want squishy, good Jesus without like Jesus that rebukes us. Some people like it like this. They're like, yeah, tell me, tell me I'm the worst. Because for some reason, we've associated loving somebody as if I love them, I got to completely accept all of them. And we think love is approval. And we think love means I got to go for it, you know, and I'm fully on board with you. And I just would like to challenge you. That's not what love is. Love sometimes is saying the hard things. Love sometimes means doing the hard things. You know how Jesus looked at love? Revelation chapter three, verse 19. He said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's not popular preaching today. It's, it's, not good, it's not good, you know, social skills to go up to somebody living in sin and be like, you need to repent, you know, but let no one dissuade you. It's not like you have to sit there and accept and embrace everything that doesn't match with what you believe, okay? Somebody recently came to me and they said, you know, how, does, how can you guys have uh, people that are in the same-sex community come into your church and you're preaching from the Bible? And I'm like, anyone can come into our church. And they go, it's so funny, though, because isn't that like, isn't that sinful? And this is what the world does. The world wants Christians to either, you know, hate the homosexual community or affirm them completely. I'm okay. Are you guys okay? Okay, y'all looking at me like, I can't believe he's saying this. But here's the thing. People want us to either hate them or affirm them. And if you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear that the Christian cannot hate anyone that we do not have a right to show hate. And if there is anybody in this room that shows dismay towards anybody because of their sin, that's not Christ-like. Are you following me? So everyone's like, well, don't you hate them? No, the Bible doesn't let me. Oh, so that means you affirm them. No, the Bible doesn't let me. No, see, you want to get me an either or. I think there's a third option with Jesus, and it's both and. We have to love and speak truth but not be a jerk about it. Are you with me? So his eyes were holy, but holiness draws us into a realization of love. Not one of us is free from the pursuit of holiness. Just because we sin differently than somebody else doesn't mean we're exempt. We're called to be holy, my friends. Even I this morning came before the Lord and said, Lord, when I get on that stage this morning, let there be nothing in me that makes this about me. Any glory that my flesh wants to take today, I already prematurely give it back to you because holiness isn't just for those that are far from God. It's for us that think we know him. We've got to be called higher, friends. We've got to be called to a deeper place of intimacy. If he's really coming back, let him come find us working on ourselves. Let us not, you know, be trying to fix everyone else around us. Let us be people that say, Jesus, I'm trying to love you and love my neighbor the best I can. 
be with me this morning. We have to be fueled by knowing him. Let me hurry up here. So we have his head, his eyes. Third is we see his feet. His feet were bronze. And when you go back and look at like Exodus and you read about the altar that was made, everything was covered in bronze. Moses's day, anything that had to do with sacrifice or judgment, it was all overlaid in bronze. And so when we see Jesus's feet burnished in bronze, it's a sign that he's coming with his feet, but it's bronze. He's coming with judgment. Okay. The next thing we see is his voice. John says, I heard his voice. His voice is his divine standard. You can't just come up with what's good and bad on your own. That comes from God. And then there's his hand. His hands represent strength and honor. Like when we're in worship, you know, someone will say, come on, lift your hands. And, and, you know, we've heard and we've been taught, like, that's surrender. Like, lift your hands, you know, like when the police pull you over and it's like, surrender. And you're like, I surrender. Or like when my daughter comes into a room and she lifts her hands, that's her wanting her dad to pick her up. Okay, biblically, hands represent honor. And so when Paul writes in 1 Timothy and he says, I want men in churches lifting up hands in worship, he's saying, I want you to take the thing you do, you use to build yourself. You work with your hands, you eat with your hands, you do everything with your hands. I want you to take those things and give them to me in worship. Okay, hands represent honor. Uh, We have, the last one is John sees his face. And his face is intimacy and instruction. This is why I really believe once we get into December and we get into Wednesday night Bible studies, I have more time to unpack a lot of this. Uh, Just for the sake of time, though, I want to continue and show you what it says in verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In this moment, as I close, Jesus gets up, and and what John is seeing is he sees a sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. Okay, it's a vision. We believe he literally saw this, but obviously what he's seeing symbolizes something. And so as John sees him, a sword comes out of his mouth. And this is where you have to really reconcile your understanding of Jesus. Like, yes, he's loving. And this is the same Jesus that, you know, the woman caught in the act of adultery is thrown down in front of him. And and all the leaders are like, aren't we going to stone her? And Jesus says, no. This is the same Jesus that blind Bartimaeus, everyone ignored him. And Jesus stopped and showed him love and said, you can come. He healed him. And blind Bartimaeus follows him. The same Jesus is one day coming with a sword coming out of his mouth. And it says it's a two-edged sword, which shows me something fascinating. There's somewhere else in the Bible we see two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter four says this about the Bible, about the word. It says the word of God is living and active and the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And it discerns your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And so what, what the Bible is saying is, the Bible is like a sword that when you read it, it cuts you sometimes. When you read it, it's sharp sometimes. And you don't really like what you're reading at first, but you know that that cut has to happen for you to truly grasp what it's saying. Okay, when I met Jesus, I, I you know, had a death sentence. I was going through chemotherapy sessions and I remember I had to get ready for my last surgery. And, and I had to have this big scar down the middle of my chest, have all this stuff done, right? And as I'm getting ready for the surgery, they're telling me, you, you've got to strip all your clothes off. 
And I'm like, okay, well, you know, can, can I just like at least keep this shirt on? This is my lucky shirt. And, you know, maybe I could put the gown on, but let me keep the shirt on. No, 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 Mr. Heather, you got Everything's got to come off. We'll give you a gown. Even my socks, because my toes, y'all, I'm a little weird about my toes. I want to keep them hidden if that's cool. So no, 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 everything's got to come off because when you go into surgery, everything has to be exposed. And there is this thing in us that when we come to church and, and the Bible starts doing the deep work in our heart, we don't want to expose everything. And we're like, God, I want you to fix my anger issues, but I'm not going to tell anybody anything about why I'm angry. Or I wish that you would help my depression, but when someone asks me a question in church, I'm going to avoid it because I don't want to be exposed. If the word is like a sword, that means every time I open it, God wants to do surgery on my soul. And he wants to cut out what's not of him so that there can be space for more of him. So living for Jesus, it gets, gets fueled by knowing who Jesus is and allowing him to speak to us. Lastly, living for Jesus this is really deep, you ready? It means listening to Jesus. Like if I'm actually living for him, I'm gonna do what he says to do. Here's what the word says, John 13, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not your church attendance, not your, you know, all the good Christian things you think you should do. Jesus says, the way someone will tell you're a Christian is how you treat others. And notice this, it doesn't say your love for other people in church will prove to me the way you, you know, are my disciples. It doesn't say your love for your family will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It says your love for one another. Jesus says you want to be seen as a Christian. Love those around you. Love those that it's difficult to love. Love motivates decisions. And when we make decisions without love, we can't get upset at the consequences. My challenge to you today is that you would see what John saw. Jesus has got your beginning and your end covered. Okay, here's what Revelation 1 verse 17 says. And this is kind of where I'll land the plane. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So John sees Jesus, he literally falls on the floor. Like it's that holy. And he put his hand on me, his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and I'm the last. What does that mean? He mean that means I'm in the beginning and I'm in the end. So what that could mean is your past has been paid for because he's in the beginning. And what you did and how you've lived and the lies you've told yourselves, Jesus paid for. He's the first. That also means, though, that he's the last, which means your future's been prepared. So not only did he pay for your past, but he's prepared your future. He has a life filled with peace and purpose. He has a destiny for you that nothing in this life can give you. That's been prepared. So that means the past is taken care of and the future's been prepared. That only leaves the present. See, Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. But it's almost as if he leaves the present on us. I paid for your sins in the past. And, and, and he's preparing a place for our future. But what do you think of him today? 